The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with the microphone. You're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. You can listen to us live every Wednesdays, 10 to 11 Eastern Time. And at the end of the day, we archive the show. Uh, today, I have two guests. First guest is author of Attractive Communication, 300 Ways to Make Communication More Attractive. Uh, the author is uh, Michael Rooney. He's also a, uh, he's obviously a communicator as well as uh, an attorney, um, currently trains business owners, couples, and individuals in the area of communication and dispute resolution. My second guest is uh, Paul Hartman. He was a former PBS NPR executive. He has authored a new um, article called Four Reasons More U.S. Churches Should Sanction Same-Sex Relationships. He's a father, a grandfather, uh, an author of the book Kydros, a five-star novel that imagines Jesus Christ as gay. But first guest is uh, here with us right now, Michael Rooney, author of Attractive Communication, 300 Ways to Make Communication More Attractive. Welcome to the show, Michael. Nice to have you on this morning. Great to be on your show. Good morning. Terrific to have you here. Okay, so we're going to be talking about attractive communication. First question, what is attractive communication, and why do we need to know about it, and why do we need to do it? Attractive communication is likable communication, but it's more than that. It's also communication that will attract the things that we want in our lives. When we think of the word attractive, we typically think in terms of attractive bodies, faces, homes, offices, cars, jewelry, etc. Globally, we spend trillions of dollars every year in substantial and precious periods of our lives in our pursuit of these things. However, I teach people that you can also have an attractive communication. And once you learn it, you don't have to pay to use it. In fact, it pays you. You can actually pick up a book and learn to communicate attractively in a few hours to a few days. And learning attractive communication is fun. Well, okay, Michael, it might be fun, but why do we need, it may be fun. What's it going to do for us? I mean, I know in your book you talk about attractive communication with respect to the workplace, personal relationships. Uh, There are many different uh, areas of, uh, uh, that we are able to uh, communicate attractively, but why do we need to do this? Uh, What it will do is uh, it will elevate our personal relationships, our business relationships, it will allow us to more amicably resolve our disputes with others. It will allow us to have a better self-talk. In fact, one of the most important communications of all is the one that we have with ourselves. Every time we have a thought, we're actually communicating with ourselves. So it has applications in our businesses, in our personal lives, in in the relationships we have with, with ourselves, and the, the approach that I've taken in writing the book, uh, Attractive Communication, is to divide it in the main areas of communication, uh, which entails interpersonal communication, the communication between people, nonverbal communication, communication without words, 
communication timing and surroundings, listening, which is an integral part of communication, persuasion, dispute resolution, and self-talk. Okay, that's a big list, and it's kind of it, when you're describing it, it sounds kind of formidable, so maybe we should go through those uh, sure. specific, yeah, specific examples because um, let's start with the, the personal. Okay, if we're going to uh, communicate attractively, uh, in a person, our personal relationships, let's say spouses, and I went online and looked at your website, and one of the examples you gave, you know, there's people who can who stay together for 60 years because for whatever reason they must be communicating attractively, they have a lot in common. Where there yeah. are other couples who have a lot in common, but they can't stay together for, you know, for 60 yes. days. Yes, that's true. And um, one of the main reasons that uh, couples you know, are able to stay together for long periods of time has to do with an aspect of attractive communication, which I refer to as interpersonal gratitude. I feel that when uh, couples express gratitude to each other for the things that they do for each other, they transmit, they transmit to each other an attractive and positive energy. And um, in turn, they become more responsible receptive and attracted to being there for each other, even more so because they feel appreciated and validated. So I suggest that uh, people actively and continually seek reasons to thank others for anything that has been done for them. I refer to uh, something called the gratitude scanner, where I suggest that people continually try to scan others for anything that they appreciate about them or anything that they could be thankful for. That's so one. I, well, when you're communicating with someone, a loved one, a spouse, a child, a parent or whatever, uh, and you're talking about gratitude. So in other words, you're listening to what the person has to say and then you are responding in a way that shows you, shows them that you are listening. Uh, yeah. I think you make, the, you make a, um, a distinction between that and say the problem solver. You know, you listen to somebody, and then you ha- you know you figure you have to solve some kind of a problem, which is not part of attractive communication necessarily. Is that true? Yes. I, I what I suggest is that people listen to what it is that uh, the situation calls for. Most often, people will tell us what it is that they need. They say, you know, I really need you to listen to me. I've had a tough day. In that situation, maybe they just need to be heard and understood, and uh, there may not necessarily have to be a very aggressive attempt to problem solve. And even though many of us have very good intentions and we want to try to be helpful, if we interrupt and attempt to stick with the issues of resolving um, a problem, instead of allowing the other person to feel heard and understood, uh, we may interfere with really what's a call by the other person uh, to have, uh, you know, a, a sort of acknowledgement from us that, that we care about them, that uh, we are a confidant. So I call this no solution listening, and... Um, there are times where they might want a solution. They may say, listen, you know, I've got this problem. Can you help me resolve it? Do you have any suggestions or feedback? In that case, solution listening is appropriate, but there may be times where 
no solution listening is appropriate. I call it no solution listening, where literally you relax and and listen without interruption, and you mirror the thoughts and the statements, and you also acknowledge the feelings, because at that yeah, point, Michael, I'm gonna, this is what social workers are trained to do. We are trained to do that, yeah. uh, as you say, acknowledge the feeling. Feelings validate someone else's feelings because it yes. gives them. They understand that now you you are hearing what they have to say. Um, you also talk about like today, multitasking is probably one of the worst or one of the biggest deterrents to having attractive communication. And yeah. I couldn't agree with you more. But I happen to see that I think multitasking is on the rise, even though we talk about it as not being a good thing in terms of people communicating and listening to one another. Um, and I'm going to give you an example because I had a friend who kept saying, "We don't communicate. You don't talk to me. You don't call me." I called her. Uh, I start talking to her, and I'm kind of being. Uh, very open and intimate about, you know, whatever I was talking about. And I can hear, being a radio person, she's not listening to me. She's on her computer multitasking, doing something else while I'm talking to her. And her initial complaint was, we don't communicate. You know, I, and wow. I think that's a good example. You know, that that's a great example. And uh, it's one of those emerging trends that I refer to as a, as a communicative epidemic. I, f- I feel that... Uh, with the rise of uh, digital communication and internet and text and all these different modes of communicating, we are becoming um, somewhat disrespectful, not that we intend to do so, but uh, even though we don't intend to send these messages, in fact, there's a perception, there are potential perceptions that A, we maybe don't care enough about the person to give them our undivided attention, or B, that we don't care about the subject matter that's being communicated to us, or C, that we don't have any manners. And those are the perceptions, and often perceptions become reality. I think A and B are really important, particularly when you are uh, engaged with your children, and I see mothers doing this with their kids all the time, uh, that the kids or the children are trying to get their attention or to talk to them or to say something, and the mother is either on the phone, on her computer, multitasking, doing a number of different kinds of things, which says your message isn't important, uh, what you have to say isn't really that important, and that's a really serious, not good message to give to our kids as we are raising them. And we lose something else that's uh, very, very important, and, and that is the nonverbal communication. There's something to be said about eye contact when people have someone looking at them straight in their eye or maybe leaning forward or moving their head up and down or maybe taking notes. Uh, then they really get to see for themselves that um, they are being listened to. And you lose a lot of that when um, you're not engaging in those nonverbal types of communication. You, in fact, are doing things that send the opposite message. Michael, in the workplace, this works obviously in a a different way uh, in the sense that if you are communicating attractively, listening, validating, uh, even problem-solving, if that's what the person or your boss or another employee asks you to do, uh, it gets you ahead in the workplace, I would imagine. So let's kind of talk about it in, in that kind of a circumstance. Yes, in the workplace, attractive communication has many applications because uh, businesses are run uh, by the people for the people. And as people, people have feelings, 
and those feelings are important. Um, we're not robots. We're people. We have emotions, and you know the way we are spoken to, and how people listen to us affects our responses to them. So, you know, a lot of the times I find people have egos at work, and I recommend people let let go of their egos, egos, excuse me, and uh, and. Try to communicate with a good energy. And, um, you know, I tell people, you know, if you can be on the same team with people, if you give a compliment to, to, to your coworker, you're actually giving a compliment to yourself because you're on the same team. After all, you guys are teammates. So a compliment to your teammates is a compliment to you. Yet oftentimes people... Uh, communicate with jealousy, and that shows with uh, that that manifests itself through lack of eye contact or fake smiles. And um, so that's one of the things I tell people is that uh, uh, the energy that you create in the workplace is going to affect the work. Let's take that into the political arena and make this. Uh... <laughs> Because as you're talking, I'm thinking about the presidential debates and the way you know when they have the two, the uh, uh, both of the the candidates juxtaposed beside each other on the television screen, and yeah. you're watching them and their reactions. Both of them, actually, Mitt Romney and President Obama, their reaction to what each other is saying. One has this kind of. So I think Obama has a sort of a sometimes sheepish grin, uh, and Mitt Romney has a smarmy grin, and I'm not sure that either one of those. Uh, seem too appropriate. I, I'm not sure. I mean, it is a debate. What do you think? Frankly, when people communicate, either as presidential candidates or as husband and wife, boyfriend, girlfriend, co-workers, uh, just friends, the nonverbal communication is being observed by the other person. And um, so... Many, many people feel that it's just the words. It's more than the words. And so if you, when you're communicating, if you lean forward, for example, and you shake your head that you understand what, what they're saying, or if you um, take notes, or if you um, disagree but do so respectfully, you come across as uh, as as maybe someone who's disagreeing with what's being said, but you come across as re- at least respectful. Is this disarming, or can this be disarming to your opponent? I'm you know carrying it a step further. Kind of want to. I'm bringing politics in because that's very current and it really does, I yeah. think, apply to this attractive communication. And we have presidents who have tried to engage the Democrats and the Republicans, Congress, and they can't do it. And bipartisan. Uh, stuff always gets in the way. How would you, I mean, you're a conflict uh, dispute person, uh, professional, uh, that's the work you do. How would that work in trying to get, so let's say, Congress and, and, and the president to work together in that framework? Well, uh, I would say respect has a lot to do with it. You can disagree with someone, but if you're respectful and you, you manifest that you've at least heard what they have to say, I think uh, that creates a bridge. And, 
you know, I, I've, I refer to a concept called uh, intact communicative bridge or intact communication bridge. And oftentimes people say things to each other that really burn down the bridge and later on when they want to approach each other, uh, it's going to be difficult because the ego is now uh, being uh, set forth and activated. All right, give us an example in one of the high conflict disputes that you've been involved in uh, where this happens. You've got business owners that disagree on a smaller or medium-sized issue. And, um, you know, instead of agreeing to disagree amicably, they make a personal attack. And so all of a sudden, what was a small issue or maybe a medium issue becomes a huge issue. All right, so what would be a small issue that became a, a huge issue? Well, they had a dispute about one aspect of a contract. And all of a sudden, by personally insulting the president of the company, all of a sudden, the president of the company doesn't even want to work with this company anymore. So the one aspect of one paragraph within the contract, which could have been resolved, now has turned into a contract that will never be because he doesn't like him anymore. So when do they bring you into the picture? Because that's a really good example how you can really blow a whole project. I mean, that yeah. involves a lot of people, a lot of money. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's really important not to do that. That's a great example of how one should communicate attractively, and you've given all the examples. And I must also say that, you know, there's so much, uh, just as kind of an aside, in the book there are very, you know, you talk about 300 ways uh, to improve your communication. So, I mean, we get, your book gets real specific, and, and I want listeners to know that when they're out there trying to buy the book. But uh, getting back to the, the specific example, uh, this is high-stakes stuff. I mean, so when it do they call st- you in, in the end or in the beginning? Or does anybody ever call you in, in right in the beginning of the conflict, or do you always get called in at the end when things are about to blow? You know, we're, we're trying to, uh, hopefully the, the book does that, but we're trying to get out the idea that, an ounce of prevention may be worth more than a pound of cure, and that when you see conflicts going south, it may be best to address them. I mean, I talk about the concept of interim solutions, where you make, if you can't resolve the entire conflict, you at least have an interim solution or even a, a potential ceasefire, where you stop fighting for a while and and try to try to have some healing. Um, oftentimes when executives are involved, there's a lot of image to be protected, a lot of ego to be protected. So uh, I utilize a lot of image or ego facilitation methods to help them build a bridge again to each other. This is also important, obviously, and I'm going to state the obvious, but in divorces, I mean, it, better to have a mediator. I mean, there are some attorneys who, of course, are really anxious for couples to fight because it, it, you know, everybody or they make money. Uh, so uh, there is that motivation not to have a mediator. But I'm thinking in cases of divorce, it would be really critical to do that. Even in case we have, you know, we're a, a litigious society. We're suing everybody all the time. This would kind yeah. of take away from that, you know. And even, yeah. that, you know, you see, Michael, on television, they're saying, well, you, if you think that you've been wronged by, 
you know, your doctor or the hospital or whatever it is, uh, you know, will help you fight or, or, or sue them, you know, and, and that's all over the, the media, the network, which kind of goes against what you're saying. I, I think there, there are times, uh, but I find them to be rare, that litigation may be appropriate because you literally can't get anywhere dis- despite your best efforts. But I find those, I find it to be um, not as necessary as as many people tend to think. I feel if people communicate respectively, if they communicate attractively, they try to listen uh, and they try to understand what the issues are. I think um, with a little bit of creativity and a little bit of effort and respect, problems can be resolved. And uh, mediation is growing, dispute resolution is growing, and uh, the reason is people are looking for other ways to resolve their disputes because they realize that um, litigation may prove to be too costly, or you may win the case but uh, lose your business relationship, in which case you shut down the entire revenues from from this business client or business customer. Well, Michael, we've talked about many ways in which communicating attractively is really a good thing in personal life, business, etc. Um, we have to say goodbye, but uh, I'll mention the book uh, again, Attractive Communication, 300 Ways to Make Communication More Attractive. And, Michael, do you have a website that we can go to? Yes, attractivecommunication.com. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show today, Michael Rooney. Uh, author and uh, and uh, also juris doctor and attorney as well. Thanks. Yeah, thank you. Thank so you. Much. It was great to be in your show. I really enjoyed it. Thank yeah, you. so did I. Thanks. Thank you. We're going to uh, take a, a short break right now, but coming up next is Paul Hartman, and he's written uh, an article uh, on uh, U.S. churches and same-sex marriage. And uh, the name of his article uh, is Four Reasons More U.S. Churches Should Sanction Same-Sex Marriage. So don't go away. We'll be back in a minute. You're listening to Catherine Zox on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. Do you need directions to solid financial future? If so, the Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with a roadmap to making smart money decisions in every area of your personal finances. Join Jordan every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern for the Money Answer Show on the Voice America Business Channel. Learn how and where to get the best deals on mortgages, cars, and insurance. Find out the best ways to save for college and retirement. Get out of debt, improve your credit rating, and save on your taxes. The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with great tips on investment opportunities in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. 
Now there's a new destination for video content, VoiceAmerica.tv, just like our radio channels and so much more. Voice America Variety, Health and Wellness, Business, Sports, Green Talk, Power Up Motorsports, and 7th Wave Network now have their own video channel components. Plus, check out exclusive programming, including movies, music, educational courses, science and history, current events, and short features. High-definition, premier-quality programs available 24-7, VoiceAmerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zock, your social worker with the microphone, and you are listening to the Catherine Zock Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Listen to us every Wednesday. You can listen to us live from 10 to 11 Eastern, and uh, at the end of the day, we archive the show. Uh, my guest is uh, Paul Hartman, a Presbyterian elder, retired PBS NPR broadcast executive and on-air personality and author of Four Reasons More U.S. Churches Should Sanction Same-Sex relationships. Um, Paul says that exclusionary policies run counter to Christ's example. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning. Thank you, Catherine. It's nice to be here. Great to have you here. Okay. Uh, So we're going to be talking about four reasons more U.S. churches should sanction same-sex relationship. Very controversial, I guess, uh, but uh, very timely. So uh, let's begin with, uh, first of all, why should they? What are the four reasons? Why should the U.S. churches sanction same-sex relationships? Uh, Before I answer that very good question (laughs) and central question, may I link back to your last uh, uh, excellent guest? Yes, you may. Do you know, and I I very much enjoyed what both of you were talking about communications, which has been a lifelong passion. Do you know the phrase, being listened to is so much like being loved, it's usually impossible to tell the difference? Uh, And I've never heard that expression. Isn't that wonderful? Uh, our executive presbyter, uh, who is like a bishop in the Presbyterian Church, has a sign on her desk that says, what these people need is a good listening to. That's very well said. Good stuff, isn't it? Yeah, that is good stuff, and I, I think that does say it all. So, right, so we'll, we'll start with that. So, uh, well, uh, the article uh, talks about... Uh, my sense why uh, U.S. churches should sanction same-sex relationships, and and more and more are moving that way. Of course, uh, a number do already, uh, Quakers, and and there are some Episcopal churches, and uh, of course, Metropolitan Community Church, United Church of Christ, and a number of other denominations are moving that way. Presbyterians and Lutherans, the largest uh, denominations of those two. Uh, are already uh, allowing uh, out gay and lesbian pastors to be ordained and installed in churches. So well, there Paul, is I'm in New York State, movement. and I'm in New York State, where of course same-sex marriage is legally sanctioned, which I, is a good thing. And I right. went to my first. I've been to several uh, weddings of friends, uh, gay marriages, but this is last week. I went to the first one that was in. A, uh, a house of worship. It was a, a conservative, actually, not reform, but conservative Jewish synagogue. 
And it was the first one where the rabbis, there were two, a male and a female, had actually performed the ceremony in the the synagogue. They had done it outside the synagogue, but said they had to wait until same-sex marriage was legalized in in the state of New York, and then they would do it within the uh, sanctuary, which they did. A beautiful ceremony, and... uh, it was uh, it was really inspiring, I have to say. So that was a conservative Jewish synagogue. Yes, yes, it's happening. It, yeah. uh, and such a difference uh, between now and when I grew up in the 1950s. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> when was typified, that? <laughs> typified by a well, I uh, I recently saw on eBay a uh, an old Hollywood Confidential magazine with a big title across the top. I I, I bought it so my kids could have a better understanding of what I grew up with. The big title said, Homos Taking Over Hollywood. It's, yeah. it, we're in a different age now. Let, uh, I have a, a story of a recent canvassing experience for our Washington State uh, effort to pass uh, same-sex marriage by ballot. It's been passed by the legislature and signed by the governor, but now we have to pass it by the ballot, too. I was out uh, my first canvassing, which was walking among the people in a, a city fair and asking if they, uh, how they stand on same-sex marriage and, or uh, marriage equality, I said. And an uh, old, dumpy, grumpy guy, <laughs> quite old and uh, sour-looking, and he had Dunlop's disease. Do you know what that is, where, where your belly Dunlop's over your belt? Yes. Anyway, I, I went up to him and said, may I ask how you stand on marriage equality with my heart in, in my throat, knowing what answer I was going to get. And he said, absolutely no. Well, wait a minute, he said. What, what do you mean by marriage equality? And I said, well, for same-sex couples as well as straight couples, and he said, "Oh, oh, I'm I'm fine with that. I I thought you were talking about equality between men and women." <laughs> That's <Terrible>. great. <laughs> it's it's an uh, uh, we've come a long way. Yes, we have come there. a long way. And and as you say, I mean, I, I, we are evolving. And I get you know, it's a human rights. I think we're getting to the point where we realize, uh, hopefully, that this is a human rights issue, um, and um, we have we are evolving. And I think that uh, I think in your article you identify, and this is probably an underestimate, that there are are 12 million LGBT uh, citizens here in the United States, and probably more because they don't over-identify; they usually under-identify. So these are people who are not getting, who are not, you know, getting the same rights that the heterosexual um, citizens are getting, which is, you know, I find abominable. Uh, but you, exactly. yeah, and but I think you know. Let's talk about, uh, and I think you know everybody or many people make the, the. Why do first of all, you're the person to ask. Why do you think pe- uh, individuals who say that they're religious, whatever religion they belong to, don't want to have basic human rights given to same-sex couples? What is it that prevents them from being able to accept this? I think uh, that's an excellent question, and I think it's because. Uh, and I know some, because I have a very strong, profound Christian faith myself, but it's much more progressive, of course, uh, than than uh, some of my fundamentalist or, or conservative friends. I think it's because they're doing the best they can with the limited knowledge they have of the Bible. They started in Sunday school, as I did, with uh, those felt-the-board uh, explanations of the Bible stories, and they've never proceeded beyond. They've never done any in- intensive study 
of of the wording in the Bible and the tra- how translations vary and and how words come about and and the context that the, the Bible times uh, uh, that surrounded the the stories of the Bible times and here's a here's here's one way uh, I have a wonderful friend I, we've been friends since first grade in Ellensburg Washington I'll call her Jane. And Jane uh, has become a very conservative Christian, and she knows I'm a very progressive one. And she's struggling with this marriage equality issue and how to vote uh, this month or this next month in Washington. And finally, I said, Jane, do you understand? To, uh, let me ask you two questions. One, do you understand that uh, we have freedom in of religion in America? Do you agree? Oh, yes, of course, she said. The part B of that question, I said, is... Do you understand that when you and I have that, we also have to honor it for others, right? That that means that our Christian faith we can't impose on on us. Okay, yes, she understands that. Second question is: Do you understand that marriage is a civil arrangement, a contract, actually, uh, <clears throat> that's uh, regulated and, and overseen by the state? Uh, because justices of the peace and ship's captains uh, can perform marriages. It's not just religious authorities. So if you're into Venn diagrams, you know, the big circle is weddings and and marriages. The smaller circle within, although it pretty much consumes it uh, in olden times, it did, is religious marriage. So, yes, she said, I guess I do understand. Well, in America, freedom of religion means that a conservative religion can't impose its will uh, on on those of us who have a religion that includes gay marriage. And she finally is saying, I think I get it, and I, I think I understand. Well, good for you. That's a <laughs> that's that, uh, You have converted in a very positive way, I would say, at least one person and probably more by that conversation. Um, I think that most, many Americans don't understand that a marriage is a contract, and I think you stated that in the beginning. Heterosexual couples, too, somehow don't understand it. They think it's, you know, marrying your prince, and that when that doesn't work out, they then realize that, well, they were in a contract with this person, which has to do with money, property, and children, actually, and who's going to take care of them. Um, So, yeah, and I think that's kind of a misconception for some reason here in in the United States, anyway. and the other thing is, and, and I'm not a Christian, but I, I'm, I, I love reading about different, ki- different religions, and I do a lot of reading. And one of the things, I mean, and you emphasize that in your article, um, Jesus said, love our neighbors as ourselves. And he would be the first, it seems to me, be the first person to, to say that uh, same-sex marriage should be legalized. I agree. And that's what my... My novel, the, the Kairos, is all about K A I R O S. If somebody uh, finds themselves interested in this next uh, few minutes, the Kairos is is a modern day suspense story about two. Dis- may I may I describe it briefly, Catherine? You may, because I didn't make that introduction. Besides this article, you are the author of uh, Kairos, and um, it is a five star rated suspense novel. And uh, so, go ahead. Let's talk about that. Sure. Uh, the Kairos, K-A-I-R-O-S, is a Greek word, one of two Greek words meaning time. The first one is chronos, which we all recognize from words like chronology, and it means human time. The second word is kairos, 
and it's uh, it's defined as one of the definitions is a breakthrough by God into human time. So if you can imagine a flat sheet of paper and critters that we've created, uh, drawn on that paper, are, are alive, and we, in the place of God, if you take the analogy, stick our finger into that piece of paper. We, we literally break into their, their time. Obviously, they have a very limited view of, of what's uh, the greater world, but they'd be amazed by that and, and astounded and probably fearful. Well, the Bible tells stories from Genesis to Revelation of uh, God sticking his finger, breaking into human time in Kairos events. And every, almost every time, do you know what the first words of God or Jesus or the angels that break into human time? There are two words, almost every time, and they are fear not. Like the angels above Bethlehem announcing the birth to the uh, shepherds, they say, fear not. What an astounding thing. If there is a divinity there, if there is a spirit uh, that's greater than we know and, and another dimension, and it sticks its, its into uh, human time occasionally, and it knows who we are and how scared we are of change and of difference and of things we don't understand. What an amazing, grace-filled thing for it to do, him, her, it to do, is to start by saying, don't be afraid. I know what's the larger picture. I know what's coming for you. Isn't that an astounding thing to know? Yes, it is an astounding thing to know, particularly, you know, and I'm, I'm always visualizing what it was like 2,000 years ago, the New Testament, 5,000 years ago, the Old Testament. I mean, you're talking about, I mean, from a historical point of view, young people, because people didn't live that long, who thought the world was flat. Um, and if you really kind of put yourself in that period of time, I mean, I think there was... Um, I think we attribute a lot of what of what we feel today to people in those times, and it was very different historically. I mean, it's um, so that message, fear not. Yeah, it does have a lot of. It, it is a very. And that, go yeah, ahead. Go ahead. No. And that ties in, Catherine, to to the story of the Kairos, uh, which is available on Amazon.com. Oh. Um, The story is two Dead Sea Scrolls uh, scholars, the top two Dead Sea Scrolls scholars in 1991, uh, are arguing about whether or not to release seven fragments that they've never told any about, including the rest of their international study team. And those seven, which are uh, written out in in this novel, uh, describe the teenage Jesus and the one that the Gospels describe as the disciple whom Jesus loved, and this novel names as John, the, uh, the, the beloved disciple, and their uh, teenage uh, and, and then lifelong partnership uh, as intimate partners. And, of course, that's so controversial. At the back of the book says, one of my friends has said that I've invented a new literary genre for conservative fundamentalist Christians, and that is religious horror. Well, what, <laughs> well I have what, to read the book because I haven't read it yet, Paul. I haven't read that book yet, and, and uh, you know, uh, as a matter of fact, I'm going to purchase it today because, as you, I mean, this talk about a, sus- a suspense novel that imagines Jesus Christ is gay, um, so uh, I'll probably buy it this afternoon and 
end up Wonderful. reading it. In a, yeah, yeah. I want to get back to some of the other stuff, though, because um, one of the things you also say, and, and I can't believe I'm quoting Jesus, but, you know, his message is inclusive, not exclusive. I mean, that kind of says it all, too. Um, that's the and, message. And so is the whole Bible, in my view, Catherine. Here's, uh, here's how I came to that realization. As a longtime public broadcaster, and by the way, it's uh, taking a lot of willpower on my part not to do a pledge break here, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> as a longtime public broadcaster and a, and, a, and a person who started in film editing way back, I realized that if you look at individual frames of the 16-millimeter film that I had shot for these uh, various uh, PBS programs, if you look at an individual frame, you don't get the you don't get the person. You don't you you see just one quick snapshot. Then if you roll it through your editing bench and you see multiple images in motion, then you get a far better feeling for that person, who they are, what grace or non grace they they show. Their smiles, their frowns, their talking. It takes seeing these things in motion. And that's how I now finally understood the Bible. If those people who pick single frames, single verses, the Leviticus verses that say you shall not lie a man with a man, and and some Romans things, and all through, first of all, there's a context context around those, a cultural context that has to be explained. There are translation problems and so on. But even if they weren't there, unless you see the whole sweep of the Bible as as 16 millimeter film rolling, uh, you don't you you can get a very warped picture. And, yeah, well, it has to Jesus, be as you say. It has to be in context. Our yeah. interpretations over the years change, not just uh, in, in. I think in all aspects of the Bible. I mean, I think when if women, men had uh, wives and concubines and many wives and many concubines <laughs> in the Bible, that's not acceptable today. That's one thing we can just start with that. Number two, uh, women, I think if they had, they were adulterers or they were adulteresses, weren't they supposed to be stoned to death? I mean, That's you right. know, we, yeah, we don't do that either. So we do change our interpretations as we kind of evolve and grow as a community and as a people. And, Bingo. Uh, yeah. I don't think God changes, but I think our understanding of God, uh, he's even said, now you threw a see through a, a glass darkly. And someday you will see face to face, and as you are known, you will be, uh, you will know. And I think that's happening over. Do you know the phrase, um, the arc of history may bend very slowly, but always toward justice. Yeah, that is a great quote. Um, and I, the word that comes up in my mind is enlightenment. You know, as, as you know, yeah. more and more light shines on the way we act and interact with one another than our then we change. And, Absolutely. Uh, yeah, and I think that, and just getting from the, and, and I just want to get to the practical because it, it always amazes me also that people uh, don't want other people to have the same human rights as they, good people, you know, these marriage, gay marriages that I've been to, each one of the couples has been together for 27 years. The second couple has been together for 17 years. Um, these, and um, not that gay couples don't get divorced or won't get divorced once they get right. married, because we're all human, obviously. But right. um, to think that heterosexual marriages, where 
you know, 51% of the people or 50% of the people get divorced. I'm a social worker. I see so many, unfortunately, and I, I'm not going to do the statistics, domestic violence, child abuse, spousal abuse. Amongst heterosexual couples, how can one be so arrogant to think that this is the only way to connect with another human being? <laughs> Jay, Jay Leno the other night said, marriage for gays? Haven't they suffered enough? Yeah. <laughs> you know, your, your point is so well taken, Catherine. Do you know it was 1967 before interracial couples were able to marry? Yeah, it was degree. illegal in the 60s to, for uh, a... That's correct. Yeah. That's correct. Poor parents couldn't marry until 1978, Supreme Court Justice. Prison inmates until 1987. So marriage is, is changing and evolving and always moving toward justice, I think. Yeah. Well, after, you know, I think that's it, always moving towards justice. We can't forget that quote. Oh, we only have a few more minutes. So what, do we, what have we not talked about? I'm going to, the Kairos, you can go to CARP, what is it, C-A-R-P-E-K-A-R-K-A-I-R-O-S.com to find out more about your book. Um, that's right. It, it, it's CARPE as in uh, Carpe uh, diem? Seize. Yeah, yeah. As in seize the day, but it's carpe kairos. So seize the kairos, seize the breakthrough by God. And those two words, fear not. And like uh, you were kind enough to point out, it's got uh, almost all five-star reviews on Amazon.com. And I think that's, and including uh, Dr. Uh, Reverend Dr. Mel White, who is a leader in, in uh, gay issues and equality over the years, and, and many others. And I think that's because... Uh, I decided not to write a polemic, not a treatise, not an essay about all of these things, but to put it into the form of a story. And some of the reviews call it a page-turner and could not put this book down and that sort of thing. I really wanted to produce a, a suspense novel that would, that would carry people through the ideas, but in a, in a story that would just really rivet them, and, and it's getting that kind of review. Somebody once said, though, why, why tell a story? Why not just come out and say what you have to say? And my answer was, well, the, the master who I follow, Jesus, told, taught and told stories. He told parables. He, his best teaching, the greatest teacher who ever lived, used parables and stories. And so I'm just trying to follow in his, his footsteps. Well, I, I like your book. I like, what, what, what's your next book? Are you in the process of writing one, another one? <laughs> this is the death now that the editors and publishers uh, say, no, this is the great story of my life. Uh, I don't have one right now. I won't rule it out for future, but this is the great story of my life, and I am so pleased that it's receiving such wonderful feedback. That's so uh, exciting. I'll, I'll think about another. Yeah. Well, you're, and as you evolve and are evolving, I'm sure there'll probably, you know, there'll be another book. But uh, so where do we want to leave listeners? Because I think it's really important. Obviously, your book is timely. This article is really timely. I think it's so important because now there's a lot of legislation that's about to happen in Maryland and in several states um, on uh, gay marriage. So um, I think it behooves us to push people in the right direction. <laughs> yeah, How's that for uh, arrogance? Thank, thank you for pointing, uh, well, you and I, and, and now the majority, uh, according to the polls uh, of Americans, are, are deciding that this is the, the right way, the, the humane and the, um, 
a loving way to treat uh, people who are not exactly like us. Well, I think one uh, thing, so I don't know if you saw this, Paul, I just want to interrupt for a minute because, yes. you know, the Human Rights Campaign, which is a huge organization in, in uh, Washington, D.C., which uh, fights for human rights, particularly in the, in the gay community, uh, I don't know if you saw this, but I did want to mention it because it fits into this show, uh, Sally Fields, her, she has three boys and her youngest son, um, is gay, Sam, is gay, and they awarded her... Uh, they had some big gala, you know, fundraising thing, and uh, she was the, the speaker, and she talked about uh, when Sam came out and her relationship with him and his two brothers, and it was a wonderful speech. I don't know if you've seen it, but uh, I, I haven't. No, well, I re- yeah, if you go to the Human Rights Campaign website and click on Sally Fields' speech, it's a beautiful, beautiful speech. I sat there right. sobbing, but um, yeah, um, so... I mean, the more that people speak out, people like yourselves and and Sally Fields and others, uh, parents of children who have you know who have gay kids um, and feel more comfortable you know with being able to be out, uh, they certainly want the same rights for all their children, not just their heterosexual kids. Yeah. So it, you know that's part of it also, I think, in terms of, of moving in the right direction. May we repeat my uh, website for people yes. to go for more information? That's www, or as my Microsoft programming son says, woo woo woo, <laughs> carpe, C A R P E, no space, kairos, K A I R O S dot com. Lots more information there, including the fact that uh, I'm only one year out of the closet myself because of my public broadcasting public face in a, a number of com- about seven communities around the United States for 25 years. Because of my faith and family, I didn't come out until last fall. A friend said to me, so is it true that both you and your book are coming out this fall? And the answer was true. So I'm 67 now, and one of my kids uh, on my 66th birthday said, Dad, you know, Mom lived to 99 and our grandma, my, their grandma, my mom, lived to 99 and one-half years old. They said, you've only got 34 and a half years left. <laughs> well, congratulations. What a great way to end the show. That is just fantastic. I love it. Um, and, um, yeah, that's fantastic. That's great. Well, hopefully, uh, and obviously, you know, um, it won't take as long for, um, or won't, uh, and, you know, people won't feel as, that they have to wait as long to come out as you did, but um, that's great. I agree. Yeah, that's I terrific. Agree. Yeah. Uh, yeah, thank you for your time. Greet your three uh, children. Yeah, by yep. the way, you said an ex-husband. Uh, my wife and uh, my ex-wife and I, we don't try to use the ex uh, term very much because it sounds negative. She yes, calls it does. Me her. She calls me her husband. <laughs> okay, that's a good. That's a great expression, Paul Hartman. Great having you on the show. Thanks so much for sharing everything. Thanks, Catherine. Yep. Four Reasons More U.S. Churches Should Sanction Same-Sex Relationships, Paul Hartman. Um, We're going to say goodbye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Hope you had a good morning. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinesox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.